For the rest of you, I'd invite you to turn, if you have a Bible with you, to Second uh, Samuel chapter 7. If you don't have a Bible with you, the text is in your order of worship. If you don't own a Bible, we've got a couple on the back table I'd love to give you. That's our gift to you. Uh, but it would be great for you to have the text in front of you. Second Samuel is in the Old Testament. Um, you go Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Joshua Judges, Ruth, 1st, 2nd Samuel. And there you go. Okay? If you reach Kings, Chronicles, that stuff, hang a left. You've gone too far. This is the last Sunday of the church's season of Advent, which means that in just a few days, we will be celebrating uh, God becoming flesh in Jesus to rescue the world. The culmination of a promise as old as history itself. Uh, if you're looking for plans to, to celebrate that on, on Christmas Eve, we will have a service here uh, beginning at uh, seven, 7 o'clock. Yes, okay, 7 o'clock. It was like 7, 7.30, 7 o'clock. So we'd love to have you there for that. But we've spent this season trying to flesh out that promise, right? Like, what is that promise exactly? What are we, what, what did Jesus, uh, what, why was he long expected? And we looked at its source in Genesis 3. We looked at its development in the life of a dude named Abraham. Uh, and this week we look at it continue to develop in the family of a king. Because you see, as God's promise develops, it isn't just anyone who's going to rescue God's world. It's a king. And so if you have your place in 2 Samuel chapter 7, I invite you, as is our habit, to stand in honor of God's word. We, we'll be reading uh, verses 12 to 16. This is God's very word. It's the Lord speaking to David. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers... I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with a rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. This is God's word given so that we might flourish. Would you pray with me? Father, uh, into this place we ask for you to speak to us. We don't ask for you to come. You're here. Uh, You have called us into this place. You've called your church together. And so we come just to hear from you, to hear you preach to us, to hear your gospel pressed into our hearts. We are in need of it. And so, Lord, we ask that you would do that. Open our hearts, open our ears, Uh, let Christ and his cross come to the fore, let the one who speaks fall to the background, and may you receive all the glory, and would you work to flourish us during this time, we ask in Christ's name, amen. Have a seat. All right, I feel the need uh, before we kind of get started to review a little bit, right, because We've been covering a lot of ground over the last few weeks, so let me uh, review before we get into our text today. Some of you remember that we started four weeks ago in Genesis 3, right? Uh, Genesis 3, specifically, verses, verse 15. Uh, Genesis 3 is, of course, this, the, the place where the story of humanity's betrayal of God is accounted. The place, we, we said during that time that you cannot overestimate the impact of Genesis 3 for the rest of the biblical story. It, it is the place where everything goes wrong. Because in the beginning, we were made for him, we were loved by him, we were provided for by him. But in time, uh, we, we turned from him. We betrayed him with devastating consequences. Uh, 
And a shorthand way of, of talking about those consequences is to simply say that all of humanity is now sinful, which, which I know we, we think it in purely moral terms. The, the Bible speaks of it in, in purely like relational terms. More, a moralism is attached to it, but it's, it's more relational, that we, have, we are sinful in the sense that we are alienated from God and in need of rescue. Now, note, what I did not say is that we're in need of a little bit of help. Just a little push-up, a little assistance to help get us there. And, and then we could make ourselves right. Now, Genesis 3 tells us that it is the, the consequences were so devastating that we were hopelessly stuck as betrayers of God, alienated from Him by nature. By nature, by, by who we are. Not just by what we do. But God promised right there that he would act, that he would work to reconcile us to himself, to deal with our betrayal and the consequences of it and the judgment that was due for it. And so then last week, because we were off a week because of the ice thing, last week we looked at how this began to work out through a dude named Abraham, right? That God would work out his plan through uh, this guy, this guy that he chooses out of, he calls him out of worship of a false god, and he tells him that the rescuer that he, had been, that, that he had promised long ago would actually come from him and that the blessing of that would extend to the entire world. Okay? And now as, as we turn to David, we see that this promise is brought forward not just with, from the family of Abraham, but with royal expectations. Okay? So as we work through the text this week, there's an outline, as always, in your bulletin. If that's helpful to you, if it's not, just leave it. We're going to be looking at things in three ways. We're going to look at the promise to a king, the promise of a king, and then finally how we reckon with that king. Okay? You ready? The promise to, the promise of, and reckoning with. All right, let's start, start with the promise to a king first with the context. Now, I say context because we skipped from Abraham to David, which is like a couple of thousand years. Okay, so there's a lot of ground here to cover. Don't worry. I'll do the short trailer, not the extended one, uh, but we do need to cover it. All right? So, Abraham, 75-year-old dude, 25 years after God first made his promise, he finally gets the culmination of that in a son named Isaac, okay? Um, Isaac, who God says will carry that promise forward. Isaac has two sons, one named Esau, one named Jacob. Esau is a, uh, a burly man. Uh, he's, he's like the jock of the family, right? He'd be comfortable in Duck Dynasty, like he's, he's hairy, uh, you know, he's, he's a man's man. Jacob, however, is, is um, not like that at all. He's a bit better with words. He's kind of a mama's boy. I mean, read the story. He's a mama's boy. Um, and, um, and he has this consistent problem that he's a habitual liar. He lies a lot. However, Jacob is the one through whom God's going to do his work. And so we have the story of Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons by four women. It's another reality show in that, I think. But anyway, he's 12 sons by four women, um, all of whom they, they collectively have one big family, and then in time gets into a wrestling match with this guy one night who turns out to be God, who renames him from Jacob to Israel. Okay, And then um, through a compelling and stunning series of events, Jacob and his family end up in Egypt under the protection of the king of Egypt called Pharaoh, right? And he ends up there because one of his sons, again, through a compelling and stunning series of events, is the prime minister of Egypt, who, because he seemed to have a knack for interpreting dreams and a great gift for administration, is placed into this place of power. And that is where the book of Genesis ends. The promise is certainly working out in some ways, uh, but these guys through whom the promise is supposedly moving forward all have one consistent thing in common. 
They are seriously jacked up. These guys are, like, there are no hall of heroes here. They are all liars, murderers, and cowards. But now, as time moves on, and a new king comes to Egypt's throne, he notices this huge family, this huge nation at this point, and he thinks to himself, I got a really cheap labor force. And so he enslaves them and sees the economic gain in it and and enslaves them. And so God, in time, sends this guy named Moses along with his brother. Moses and his brother were part of Abraham's family. Again, stunning series of events. Moses ends up being raised in the household of Pharaoh and then has to get out of town because, again... He murdered somebody, okay? He was a great guy. And so Moses, um, Moses and his brother come back. God calls them to deliver um, Israel, this family of Abraham, from Egypt. And after some crazy plagues and some really obvious manipulation by Egypt's king, I mean, if you couldn't see that coming, this is something crazy. But So all of this happens. Finally, finally, Moses is able to lead Abraham's family, now this huge nation, out of Egypt in what we call the Exodus, okay? They make it into the land promised to Abraham, but almost immediately they begin turning from the God who rescued them. And then we have this book. It's called Judges. And throughout this book, the consistent refrain is, you need a king. You need a king because without him, you you can't stay faithful. Um, If they don't have a king who is faithful to God, they will become more and more like everyone else in the world. And eventually, they do clamor for a king. They want a, a king like the nations have. And so God gives them a king like the nations have. He is big, he is strong, and he is faithless. And when he refuses to depend on God, God chooses another king by the name of David. Okay? You still with me? Almost there. All right. So David comes on the throne. David, like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, is no model hero. Now, it's true. Some of you are like, well, wait a minute. Doesn't God call him something special? Yes, he does. He calls him a man after his own heart. However, he also steals a dude's wife, has the guy killed, is a terrible parent. I cannot go into that, but a terrible parent. Um, And gets way too big for his britches. And in the midst of all of this, God comes and he makes a promise to him. Which he clearly earned, right? No, that's the whole point. He makes a promise to him. Now, let's get to that promise, shall we? That's the context. Let's get to the content. Now, to understand why this promise is such a big deal, you have to understand a little bit about the ancient Near East. Being a royal family in the ancient Near East had a very um, high rate of fatality, okay? That was a bad job choice. If you wanted a safe, comfortable life, believe it or not, being royalty was not the way to go. Dynasties in the ancient Near East fell constantly, constantly through murder, through revolt, through conquest. It was a perilous vocation. But God promises something different, okay? So look down at our text really quick. God promises several things. First, he says he will raise up one of David's offspring to rule. Now, this phrase is really important because in the original what it says is, I'm going to raise up your seed from your own body, which if you were here last week may ring some bells for you because that's the exact same thing he said to Abraham. I'm going to raise up your seed from your body to do these great things. So here we have God saying the same thing to David that he said to Abraham. This bears the marks of God's covenant with Abraham. And it's a further working out of that promise, okay? So let's, let's keep going. We'll come back to some of this stuff. Second, God will establish his kingdom, which is to say that he will be safe on his throne, okay? The dynastic problems won't happen to him. And next, he will build a house for, his, his, for God's name, and that means a temple, okay? Because up to this point, God, worship of God was done in a big tent. 
big tent, really ornate tent, but a big tent. Again, this is, this is one aspect we don't have time to get to. I wish we did, but we don't. Um, and, and then finally, well, next, God says that this king will be a son to him, to God, and God will be his father. Now, in the ancient Near East, okay, the context of, of, of David's life, this was normal. Okay? It was very normal for the king to be considered the son of God. But here's why it was normal. Because the king wanted divine permission to do whatever he wanted. And if you're the son of the king, you get to do whatever you want. Right? And so if you're, what more if you're the son of God? And so the king was consistently called the son of the deity for the, for the fact that he could have divine authorization to do whatever he did. But here, it has a different meaning. Look down in verse 14 if you can. Because this sonship means that when he steps out of line, God will discipline him. This would have been remarkable. I mean, think of what I just said. Kings used that title, Son of God, to give them authorization. Like, look, you can't mess with me. My daddy's up there. He says whatever I say is good. But here, divine sonship means that there are boundaries. There are expectations on it. And when the son steps out of line, he will be corrected. And when I say corrected, I mean with actual discipline, like rods and stripes. He's not getting a timeout, okay? Like he's getting real stuff. But even then, the with the discipline, God says that he will not remove his, his steadfast love. That's the way the, the ESV, the English Standard Version, translates it. Now, that word that, that we translate steadfast love in the original in Hebrew is the word hesed. And hesed is a remarkable word. It's, but it's hard to define because it is very specific and completely foreign to us. So on the one hand, it means love. So, so it does mean love, but it's more than a feeling. When we say love, we think romantic love, okay? And that's part of the case. It's, it's, it does have a feeling attached to it. But it also is often connected with the, with the word for truth, and so it, it bears, brings with it a strong sense of loyalty. And hesed is grounded in this idea that we talked about last week, the idea of a covenant. Remember, we said that a covenant is simply a promise-bound relationship that has a few components to it. On the one hand, it's relational, but it's also legal, right? Think of a marriage where it is relational in the sense that the, the, the spouses love one another, but it's also legal, like they've made promises that are legally binding on one another. When they break those, there are legal consequences for them. Got it? Okay? Same kind of idea. Hesed is the same. In a way, it means faithfulness. But when you and I think of faithfulness, we think of duty, okay? But since faithfulness to God includes loving him with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, so then it also has that relational component to do it. And so what God is saying here is he's saying, I'm vowing to not remove this, my covenant love from your family, David. I will accomplish my purpose. Now, this would have been really important to hear for David, specifically because this dude is messed up just as much, if not more, than anyone else in his kingdom. If anyone had a claim to be able to earn a place to have God look on him with favor, it was not David. Okay? And so finally, God says, the last thing he promises is that your throne and your kingdom will last forever. Now, saying that is just straight up crazy. Because to say that your throne is going to last forever is pretty much impossible, right? Because nothing lasts forever. Uh, 
The only way that this promise isn't pure pie in the sky is if not only the throne would last forever, in other words, the, the, the rule, but also the one who's on it, okay? And so here's what's going on. God is further defining how he's going to work out his purpose. In the immediate thing, is he talking about Solomon? Yes, there's a, there's a place for Solomon in this promise. But because of this last bit, it, it gets projected outward. Not only will God execute his promise through Abraham's family, but more specifically through David's family. In other words, he will accomplish his work through a king. Okay? You with me? All right. Now let's turn our attention to the promise of a king, first by seeing these kingly hopes. You and I live in a society that doesn't much um, have an appreciation for monarchy, right? Kind of our, our cultural air that we breathe is fairly opposed to it, even though if you talk to folks who were raised in Great Britain, they'll tell you that... that our president is more like a monarch than theirs, <laughs> okay? But that's, that's not the point. Uh, the, the point is that we, in principle, chafe at the idea of a ruler. And because of that, we tend to not like biblical passages about kings. But the king idea doesn't start with David. It didn't even start when the people started clamoring for a king, like we want a king like the nations. The idea of a king began in Genesis. It began at the beginning. Because, look, humanity was created in God's image to rule over the earth. Not for the sake of exploitation, not as if our rule was meant to, to use creation for what we wanted. Our rule was in, in, intended to be extended for the sake of creation. We were, it, we were to extend the rule of God throughout the world. But this went bad when we turned from God. That's the betrayal we talked about in the beginning. We turned away from him. Literally, I can't say it any better than that. He's this way, we turn this way, okay? We have turned away from him. And we needed to be rescued from the consequences of that betrayal. And so the idea of a new king to restore things to what they were meant to be is sketched out before this passage that we're in, but kind of gets colored in after this. And here's what I mean. When Abraham's family is rescued from Egypt, okay? When they're rescued from Egypt, one of the things God says about Israel, about the family, is that out of Egypt, I called my son. Israel is called God's son. Okay? Just like here, where David is, is or David's seed is spoken of, and just like that ancient Near Eastern idea of a king. In other words, Abraham, through that family, there would be a rule extended. However, because Abraham's family kept failing, that new son of God is needed who could be faithful. And so the king, in the midst of this, becomes a kind of representative a representative of the whole people. And this is played out through, through, if you were to turn to the next book of the Bible after 2 Samuel, 1 Kings. And in 1 and 2 Kings, the entire point of those two books is that as the king goes, so goes the rest of the people. You have a good king, all the people seem to be doing well. You have a bad king, all the people turn away from God. And it's like, boom, like that. It's like, dude sets up a couple of high places. In other words, some little places to do worship on hillsides. And suddenly everyone's like, Woohoo! Who needs God? Let's go for Baal. And they're all running off to him. It's, it happens, it seems to happen that quickly. And so, literally, like this language of Son of God would not have been lost on David. Okay? God is saying that the rescue plan, the way that God will put an end to our betrayal, our sin, and our evil in the world is coming through one of David's lines. But the problem is, like the problem with the covenant of Ab with Abraham, is that David's line, not real great guys. Okay? And it's not just David. 
Solomon wasn't any better, and the rest of them weren't any better. They all had serious, serious flaws. And the Old Testament ends with David's heirs making a huge mess of everything, so much so that first they're yanked out. Everyone, everyone is deported. Like, ancient power comes in, conquers them, yanks everybody out, and spreads them to the wind because of David's kids. And then, after a while, God brings them back, but they can't ever get traction. They can't get anything going. David's heirs have made a huge mess of everything. They can't deal with the brokenness of the world, friends, because they are broken. They can't put an end to evil because they are just as evil as everything else is. They can't be agents of reconciliation with God because they're not reconciled to Him. The good news is, though, that, and the whole point of this season is that God is always true to his promises. He's always true to his promises. He promised something, and he will accomplish it. Because you see, after David's kids make such a mess of these things, uh, these guys called the prophets begin talking about God bringing a better king, a new king, a king who will be different and who will rescue us. He will be the child born to us from Isaiah chapter 9, upon whose shoulders the government will rest. In other words, he will rule, okay? He will reign on David's throne. Remember that throne, the one that's going to last forever? He will reign on David's throne, and through him everything will be made right. He's the root of David's father Jesse in Isaiah 11, who will not only come to... to, uh, to rule, but to lead us out of our long exile of sin. He is, he is the Son of Man in Daniel chapter 7, who comes before God uh, and as a representative of the people and is given a kingdom and authority and sits at, right, at God's right hand. But how is God going to raise up a king from a bunch of messed up, jacked up people who can actually make things right? How is he going to do that? How is he going to do it when we are all broken? And the New Testament answers that question with the mystery of of God becoming flesh in the person of Jesus. Right? Listen, the great argument of the New Testament is not that Jesus was some kind of wandering philosopher or great teacher. I know that that's what you hear in popular books and even sometimes in the media. National Geographic loves that angle. Okay, That is not the argument of the New Testament. The argument of the New Testament is that Jesus is Messiah. And that word doesn't that word is just churchy for us now. What that meant in its original context meant anointed one, like king. He's the ruler. He's the ruler. And they say this because everyone knew that the king would set the world and us to rights. And so since there could be no faithful son of David, no no faithful king from David's line, God the Son became flesh in Jesus to be that faithful king. Since no king from David's line could actually reconcile us to God, God himself stepped into David's line to reconcile us to himself. And he did that in a way that's even hinted at in this passage. Okay, did you notice that? Jesus was without sin, He was perfect, and yet he bore stripes, literally beaten with rods. He took discipline in our place. He bore the judgment that we were due. As our king, he went to war for us, not by going out on a battlefield, but by, by climbing the cross and bearing our sin in our place and then rising from the dead and taking up the throne of David where he rules forever. Jesus, friends, is the long-expected answer to the promise to David 
for a new and better king. Now, that is the reality of what we celebrate this time of year. The reality is not that we celebrate a baby, okay? But a king, and not just any king, but the long-promised king who would come and deal with our sin and set things right. The only question left to us at the end of that time is, what are we going to do with that king? Now, I want you to think about that for a minute. What will you do with this king? Because you and I can get so caught up in the nostalgia of this time of year, right? I don't... If you listen to 93.1, okay, here's what you get. Christmas is this cloudy, wonderful place. Everyone loves each other and gets along. And if it could only be this way forever and ever, I will never live up to your expectations, okay? Let me just... But that's the way we're taught to think about this time. And we can think about it with nostalgia and sentimentalism. We forget what this holiday is about. The stories of Jesus coming get cleaned up for us. They get polished up for us with that kind of sentimentality. But they are a great example of why he came. Think about it for a minute. Mary and her fiancé Joseph have to travel 80 miles on foot from where they live to where they are told to go when she is nine months, like, bursting pregnant. Why? Because they live under the rule of this wicked dude by the name of Octavius. They are a conquered people. You may have heard of Octavius. We call him Caesar Augustus. Okay? They live under his rule and have to do whatever he says, even though he, he treats them like chattel. When they get to Bethlehem, and she's in labor, nobody will give up their room for her. People are like, dude, my bed. Sorry. So she has to give birth in a cave and put her baby in a feeding trough. Some of y'all won't take your kids to Walmart because you're afraid of what they might catch. Can you imagine what we're talking about here? Like, this is a perfect example. And then... Because of the little puppet king who's living, um, who, who's kind of ruling over this time, he finds out that, that some people think that a new king was born. He gets so insecure, he decides to send his troops to Bethlehem and slaughter every boy from two years old and under. Just kill him. I will suffer no rivals. That's the Christmas story. Ooh. Where's the mistletoe? Like, isn't this great? We sing Silent Night in a little town of Bethlehem, and we forget that Jesus was born into a world of cruelty and selfishness. Jesus was born into this world, our world, not some fairy tale mythic place, our world. Jesus came, friends, because we are messed up. And we know this. Listen, I don't have to convince you that you mess up. Right? I don't, I don't have to convince you of that. For many of us, though, what we think that really means is that we just need to try harder. Yeah, yeah, Rick, I get it. I'm messed up. But, it, you know, it's almost New Year's. I have a resolution. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure you do. Um, so do I. And it'll be done by January 4th. Okay? We think all we need is to try a little harder because we don't understand the nature of the problem. The problem isn't that you and I are bad, okay? I mean, however you define bad. That's, that's not primarily the problem. It's that you're seeking independence from God. You're seeking to do things on your own. In other words, you're in rebellion against the king. Now, some of our rebellion looks um, very moral and very responsible. 
And some of our rebellion looks like a train wreck. But it's all the same problem. We are all in the same boat, and you cannot deal with your independence independently. You cannot deal with your rebellion by staying in rebellion to the king. It cannot happen. It's an oxymoron. The real question is, will you return to the king? Will you turn from your betrayal and your treason back to the one who has loved you? Will you place your life in the, the hands of the rightful king? Because look, we, we all know we're messed up, but what are we hoping is going to rescue us from that? You think it's your morality? I can be good enough. Your pursuit of pleasure. All I really need is to just get mine. That's all that really matters. It'll all go away. Maybe it's getting paid, right? Just get enough money. Being successful. Maybe for some of you it's being religious. If I can just do enough for God, he'll like me. Friends, Jesus is the king that God promised. And listen to me close. He is the only king who can rescue you. The only one. Those things will fail you. They will always fail you. He is the only ruler who knows the full depth of your treason. He knows you fully and yet loves you completely because he will forgive you completely because of his death and resurrection. And so Jesus is the only rescuer, but he's also the only authority. Now, it is really popular today to like certain things about Jesus, but not others. And I say that no matter where you are at in your, in your, your journey, either to Christ or with him, okay? It is really popular to like certain things about Jesus, but not others. Because on the one hand, some of us like what he said about care for the poor, but we reject what he said about sexuality, Right? That's culturally conditioned. The poor stuff, that's forever. Now, others of us love what he said about sexual morality, but we hate what he said about our money. And so we, we say it was like, well, he was serious about sexual morality, but on the, on the money stuff, he was just trying to make a point that we can't save ourselves. Okay. All right. So what we do is we, li- what we like to do is we take a little bit of Jesus, we take what he said in one place and we add it to our conventional wisdom, whether that conventional wisdom is traditional wisdom or progressive wisdom. We add it to it and then it becomes really nice for us and we say, see, we follow Jesus. I need you to listen to me really close. Jesus is the king. And what that means is what he says goes. Jesus is not looking for Facebook friends to like his status updates and ignore the ones they don't like. He is not looking for Twitter followers because he needs to be made to feel important by people retweeting his pithy sayings. That's what you and I do. That's not what Jesus is about. Jesus is king, which means you can't be like, yeah, I mean, I follow Jesus, but I really don't want to give up, you know, my porn or my greed, or my gossip. I really like talking about other people, or the way that I use and abuse others. Jesus is king, and the king suffers no rivals. Let me be clear. If that, what I just described is true of you, you are not a follower of Jesus who is dabbling in those things. You are not following Jesus. 
I love you guys. But we need to hear this. Okay? Now, some of you are like, wait, Rick, stop. You're being legalistic. Don't put your law on me, brother. Like, I thought you said all this is, is by grace. I've heard you say it. You're right. I did. And it is. But the core of Christianity is not an intellectual assent. It's repentance and faith. Repentance and faith. You cannot claim to have repented of these things to follow Jesus and then walk the other way, right? If that's where Jesus is, you can't claim that you're following him when you're walking this way after your stuff. Now, that doesn't mean that all of us know that we're doing this yet, but when it is brought to our attention, we go, oh, all right, I need to follow Jesus and not this thing. That doesn't mean that change is easy, okay? Don't hear me saying that. But what I am saying is that Jesus died to redeem you from these things. Stop fooling yourselves. Change can happen. In fact, it must happen. Okay? Now, in the same way, in the same way, Jesus is king, which means that if you claim to be his follower, you and I are not at liberty to to disregard his word because it doesn't fit our paradigm. Whether that paradigm goes by the label of conservative or liberal or tolerant or simply what I desire or simply what I believe I am owed. You can't have it both ways. You cannot say that Jesus was right with social concern but crazy when it comes to all that I'm God talk. Okay? You can't say that Jesus was great when he talked about heaven, but all those words about sexuality and money are completely cultural. If he is your king, then you are to follow his word, not what you want his word to say. If you're not sure what his word says, read it. Now, I'm not saying everything is really easy to understand. Don't hear me say that. Okay? Like, I have a graduate degree in this thing, and sometimes Jason comes to my office and he's like, Rick, what does this mean? I'm like, I don't know. He's like, well, what do the books say? They don't know either. <laughs> and nobody, you know, I'm not saying it's easy to understand. What I am saying is that God is faithful. He will reveal himself to you in it. If you're not sure what it says, read it. If you need help, come see you know, one of your elders. He has revealed himself to us, and he has not left us to guess, okay? Jesus is king, but he is a king who died for you. We follow him, not so that we can earn his favor, not so we can earn a place in his family, because he has already given it to us. We obey him, not because we want something from him. I know that's why most of us obey everything, right? We obey our parents because we want something from them. We obey the government because we want something from it. And when we think that it won't give us anything, we stop obeying it, right? Okay? We obey because, not to get something from him, but because he has already given us everything that we need to flourish. Jesus has secured our redemption. He has reconciled us to God. He has dealt with our guilt, our sin, and our shame. But what's more, he is actually a king who knows what it will mean for you and I to flourish because he created us. Whether you have been following Jesus all of your life, only claiming to follow Jesus, or not even pretending to, let me ask you to lay aside the other rulers you hope will save you. And return instead to the one who loved you and who gave himself for you. Would you pray with me? Lord, for the sake 
of your great name as our great king, but also for our good, we, I ask that you would work in us repentance and faith. For we are a fickle people. Whether it's uh, those of us who are uh, claiming to follow Jesus or those of us who, who wouldn't even claim it. But we are all fickle and we need your grace. We need a righteous and faithful king to rescue us. And so, Jesus, I ask that you would be that king for us, even this morning. Work in our hearts. Turn us towards you. We ask it in Christ's holy name. Amen.